Your kingdom is forever. And you want to rule in the hearts of men. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning and this afternoon. And that your word may go forth as we have sung. Come ye hither, all ye nations, and hear your glorious message, the gospel. Bless the hearer, open the hearts of all of us to receive your word in meekness mingled with faith. And bless the servant that he may expound that which is good in your sight and that it be your message and not coming from this vessel of clay. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As uh, many of you are aware, we have been studying the book of Matthew, um, chapter 5, which is the Beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes of the Christian. I'd like to uh, focus on... um, Verses 43 and to the end. Verses 43 <clears throat> to the end. We covered uh, verses 33 to the end last Wednesday at CFG, but we didn't quite get through the last portion as detailed as I would have liked to. So let's turn to Matthew 5, verses 43. Ye have heard it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than them, than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. I've read up to and including the last verse of chapter 5. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow to pray. Dear Father in heaven, as we bow before thee at the beginning of this Lord's Day, the beginning of this service. We acknowledge all of the grace that has been poured out on us already this morning to arrive at this place, to be here. That the fact that we have life, that we have breath, that we have ability to come, dear Father, and we reflect and we realize that it is thy goodness, thy goodness to all men, and that there are many this day that are going about their business, enjoying maybe a day off from work, and are not thinking about Thee, dear Father. And we say that not to pat ourselves on the back, but to reflect upon Thy Father heart, to see things from Thy perspective, how good Thou art to all of mankind, and what a scant return is paid to Thee for thy goodness. Dear Father, and we reflect on ourselves and all the goodness that has been poured out on us, all the mercy, all the love, specifically in the, in the person, in the doings of Jesus Christ. And we, again, have to say, Lord, what a scant return has been given to thee for all the grace poured out on us in our lives. Dear Father, so at the beginning of this day, at the beginning of this worship service, we wish to adore thee, to acknowledge thee for thy goodness and to confess our own unworthiness and to start from that place as we bow before a holy, 
perfect God. We who of ourselves are imperfect fall so short. So many times are focused on just what touches us and our comforts. What makes us happy. What's convenient for us. What offends us. Dear Father, and we fail to see the reason that we're here. We're, we fail to see the one who has put us here. We fail to see the heart of the Father poured out on his whole creation. Dear Father, this day we are thankful to come into thy house. This day we are thankful to have the freedom to worship, to set aside all of what has occupied us in the past days, whether it be work, whether it be cares of this life, whether it be toil, whether it just be the, the things that we have been carrying mentally, the burdens that we've been carrying emotionally, to actively, to, to deliberately at this moment set them aside to hear thy word, to, to focus just on that, dear Father, because we know as we hear the, the gracious words of Jesus Christ, as we hear the gracious words of his servants, dear Father, that life will begin to make more sense, that we will begin to see things clear, that we will see, yes, there is a heavenly kingdom that can be had here and now, that can we enter into here and now, that this life does not just consist of the things that we uh, uh, do and touch and see or, or, or that the world goes on about or the, that the world promotes. No, there is a heavenly kingdom that is being proclaimed here today. And what glory is in that kingdom. What delight that can fill our whole bodies with light. Dear Father, we pray thy kingdom would come even this day. Thy will would be done even this day. As it is in heaven, so on this earth. Dear Father, we realize that this comes through preaching, through the foolishness of preaching, the proclamation of thy word, that this is thy delight, that the kingdom would be proclaimed just as thy son did 2,000 years ago through preaching. Dear Father, we are thankful for this and we ask that it would go in power and in simplicity this morning hour not according to men's devices, not according to man's wisdom, dear Father, but as thy servants listen to the king who is on his throne, the king who is ruling now, even though the world doesn't acknowledge that. The world just puts him aside, makes clever pronouncements about this Jesus of Nazareth. Dear Father, we know he is the king. And one day he's coming back to rule in power and in glory that the whole world will know. So we pray that his kingdom would come. Dear Father, we pray for all those that couldn't be with us in this place today, those that are members of this local body that couldn't assemble with us to be in this room. We're so thankful for the gift of technology that brothers and sisters can tune in online, but we know that there is... Uh, there's no substitute for being here and, and hearing this and, and seeing each other. And Dear Father, so we pray that thy, thy word would go out and that the needs of, of thy children would be met even through the internet and through um, the devices that we have, dear Father, and most of all through the gift of thy Holy Spirit, the gift that is present with us now, the gift that we acknowledge he is underutilized, even in this moment, even in this day. Help us to use that gift, to stir up that beautiful gift of the Holy Ghost within us and the gifts that he has given us to use for thy purposes, for thy kingdom. Dear Father, stir us up, thy poor children that are assembled here. We pray for thy word wherever it goes out, dear Father, in the many different corners of this world. Those that are preaching it in the face of persecution, those that are preaching it in prisons, that are uh, fearful for their lives, dear Father, but, but yet are realizing the promises that were given at the end of the Beatitudes of great joy. Dear Father, be with them. Help them. We pray for the sick in our midst. We pray for thy will to be done in their lives, that they would see thy will being done 
that they would see the hand of a sovereign, all-powerful God who holds the lives of his children in his hand, that, that allows things to happen beyond our understanding, and yet we begin to see. We see just little glimpses here and now of thy wisdom, of the power that goes beyond the physical. We pray that that would be in their lives. We pray for healing. We pray for relief, dear Father, for those that have suffered for many years. Help them, dear Father. Give them that grace to go through today, to trust in the one who knows what tomorrow will bring. Dear Father, we pray for our children. We pray for a hedge, a spiritual hedge to be built about them this day. And we realize this happens, dear Father, through the preaching of thy word into their hearts. The stories that they learn, the, the truths that they learn, the hedge is built. The protection is afforded. But we pray that they would not neglect this, that they would learn what is valuable. They would treasure it as we treasure it, dear Father. And dear Father, forgive us. Make up our lack in so many ways where we haven't treasured it enough, where we haven't held up thy word enough. We haven't spoken it the way it should be, that where it should accord with our actions. Forgive us, dear Father, and help us as parents to, to do better by thy will. Dear Father, we thank thee for all these things. We pray for our brother as he proclaims the word. We pray, dear Father, that that would meet his needs. And we pray all this realizing how much has been given to us already through Jesus Christ, that we have everything, the riches that are available even this morning hour through the heavenly kingdom as we sit at his feet for learning. Amen. The uh, Beatitudes of Jesus Christ are inexhaustible. We probably don't do it justice by going through one sermon to try to draw out all the teachings and meanings that Christ intended for the multitude that was with him and the disciples. And really they're the, they're the fundamental principles on which the kingdom of God is built and applied to so many aspects of our lives. For those that ha have not been attending for various reasons, we're talking about the kingdom. When Jesus came and John the Baptist first started preaching two chapters before this, he was preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is at hand it's here and there are many different ways you can perhaps or some people try to interpret understand what the kingdom of heaven means but one thing we need to do is go back to basics fundamentals and that is any kingdom, any true kingdom, should have a king. Um, another word for that is a monarch, a one ruler, a monarch. And he has total rule, absolute sovereign rule. There used to be something like in the last century or to at least at least a century perhaps 24 or 5 kingdoms that have now disappeared they've gone to democracies or some despotic governments they're not called kings but they're called presidents or tsars they were even today, the Queen is the Queen of England, and she's part of the United Kingdom, but she has very little clout, very little rule over the people. Instead, there's a parliament, and there's elected councillors, um, commons, and, 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 and 
ministers in the cabinets there, just like there is in Canada. And so the, the, that kingdom is ruled really by a group of people that show how they're corrupt and fallible and they're re-elected or removed from, from office through elections. But with God, God's kingdom is not like that. It is not a democracy. It is not ruled by the people. It is ruled by God. And those that want to enter into his kingdom need to do so on his terms, on his basis. We are reminded of John 3 where Jesus tells Nicodemus, except you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again of the of water and spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And the way one makes his or her way into the kingdom is not through migrating from one to the other, but it's being born into the family of the king. Except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And being born into the family of the king has a great deal of significance. Um, Brother Edmund mentioned uh, he had a sermon on this, uh, the same uh, Beatitudes, was it last week or the week before? I wasn't here. But some came to him afterwards and said, this is, it seems like this is impossible to keep. What Jesus is putting down as requirements for kingdom subjects seems impossible. Well, without God is impossible. Without God, it is impossible. That's the key. With God, all things are possible. And so, you know, we've gone through chapter 5 where Jesus said except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God so to enter the kingdom of God we need to become righteous and you can read the, throughout the gospels and throughout the, the, the Pauline and Petrine letters and the others James that the way to attain the righteousness of God is to believe what he has done. Not to demonstrate that you are worthy by your works and by your uh, abilities, but rather to believe what Jesus has done. Because they tried to do this since the time of Adam. And then Moses, when they received the law, they tried to maintain or be accepted by God by keeping his law. And they, they failed miserably. And the writer of Hebrews says, why does that, is it because God's law or God's covenant was not perfect? No. It was broken not by God, it was broken by the people. He said that because the people failed and because they couldn't keep the law, God brought in grace. He didn't do away with the law. He, you know, he says, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law or destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. Now, there are certain aspects of the law which were not even meant for the Gentiles. But there are aspects of the law that keep on coming up in the New Testament. The royal law, James calls it. 
the moral law, where we are convicted by basing by uh, breaking uh, God's ten commandments that are based the basis of much of our lives as well. You know, Jesus brought it up in chapter 5 of Matthew. He talked about anger. He talked about lust. And he says, you have heard it say of old time, you know, an eye for an eye and two for a tooth. But I say unto you that whosoever shall smite thee on one cheek, give him the other. Who shall sue thee at law, to take away your coat, give him your cloak also. And it made little sense to these people that are hearing it. That doesn't make sense. That's not what we've learned. That's not what we've understood. And it doesn't seem fair. He that asks from thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, Turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it had been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. And the law that Jesus was going to really emphasize to the people and what should really motivate the way we live is really, if you will, this is the crown of his sermon in chapter 5. And he brings to the forefront that love trumps true love trumps everything because if I love I won't hurt others because if I love I won't steal because if I love I won't commit adultery with my neighbor's wife because if I love I will I will honor and 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 and, and cherish my parents because Jesus said the whole summation of the law lies on two well, the, the law hangs on two commandments. Love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And on this hangs all the prophets and the law. So Jesus puts a jewel on top of this whole service sermon before, and he says, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? So you can be accepted by God? So that you can get checked off as you are now qualified? No. That may be a small part of it. That's not the, that's not the major motivation for it. that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. And it's not so that you can accept it. Now, you're my child because you've done these things, but because you are now reflecting the true heart of God. You are now reflecting the true heart of God because my Father is like that, and when you do things like that, you now are reflecting the image that God created you for and intended you to be conformed to. That was the initial intent in the garden. And then when man fell, the image was tarnished, the image was blemished. The last verse of, 40, of uh, chapter 5 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And then this is where it gets everyone. I can never be perfect. I can never achieve perfection. If you look into the Old Testament word for perfection or for perfect, there are several, um, there's two or three connotations to that word. One is it's complete, just like it is in the New Testament in the Greek. Perfect means to be complete. But it also means to be mature. But the Old Testament has another connotation in many verses. 
that says without blemish. Now, that's where we get hung up on, without blemish. Or there's another word, if you look into Strong's Concordance, it says, with, or phrase, without spot. That's what, Jesus, that's what the Apostle Paul says when he talked about the church being presented to Christ as a bride without blemish and without spot. Christ expects his bride, when he comes to receive her, will be without blemish and with, without spot. And we say, well, that's impossible. Remember, with God, all things are possible. And this is where, this is where grace and law differ tremendously. Because James says, for if we fail in one point of the law, we're guilty of all. How can that be then, that we can be perfect? And we are judged then by our righteousness. This is, this is why they could never achieve righteousness. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 10, when he went through three chapters, 9, 10 and 11, and his whole um, intent there was to show when people were asking, did God fail his promises to Abraham? Because God says, out of your seed, I will create many nations. And he was expecting his nation to be amongst them all. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those three patriarchs. And he says, and in Isaac shall thy seed be. And you will be a father of many nations, and they shall be as the stars of the sky and the, the, the sands of the sea in number. And yet, at the time of Paul, Israel had already rejected the Messiah as a whole. There were some Jews that did accept him. Many, as we know, were his disciples, the apostles. And then those that believed at Pentecost and, and at the preaching of Paul and, and the other apostles as they traveled through Asia and Europe. But Paul says that the nation of Israel, God has not failed his promise. There will be a remnant that will be saved. But those that, that, that rejected Christ, those that did not believe in Christ, He said the reason that they were rejected was because they went to establish their own righteousness. They didn't want to have the righteousness of Christ, what he had done for them on the cross. They wanted to go and establish their own righteousness and they failed miserably. Just look at all the woes that Jesus uh, hurled at the Pharisees, the law. The, the lawyers, the scribes, the, the, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, and the Sadducees. All the woes in chapter 23 of, of, of Matthew. They failed miserably. They could never be perfect. The Apostle Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, said that the comers thereunto... The, the, the sacrifices, the altar where all the goats and the bullocks and the sheep and the turtle doves were all slain and their blood was shed could never by these sacrifices be made perfect. But the Jews insisted on doing that. Rejecting the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they they rejected him and kept on going with the, on with their rituals. There was a, I love this chapter which came up in uh, CFG on Wednesday. The book of Galatians, 
chapter 3. It says, Tell me, verse 21, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, under the dominion of the law, under the rule of the law, do ye not hear the law? Do you know what it's saying? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondmaid, Hagar, I'm putting that in, the other by a free woman, Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born of the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. God promised that Abraham would have a son through Sarah. He promised that. Why did he call Ishmael a son of the flesh? Because the decision to have this son was a, was a carnal decision. It wasn't made by God. It wasn't given by God. Because of a lack of patience, because of a lack of faith, on the couple's part, Sarah gave her bondmaid, her slave, Hagar, to bear a son to Abraham so that in case he died, everything would go to that son. That was of the flesh. This is a decision made by the flesh. And many times in our lives, we make decisions by the flesh. We know what the Word of God says. We know that the Word of God says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things that, you, that we want to have, all our needs, God will provide. But what do we do? I'm speaking as we as a as a whole, we said, well, I'm not sure if God's going to provide. I'm not sure if God's going to give me the girl I want or the job I want. So I'm going to grab it for myself. I'm going to make that decision and then I'll decide, then I can accept God. I've seen it happen many, many times. The same drivers in our lives, anger, lust, ambition, drive us to, to wish for the things of the flesh, to satisfy our flesh. And we don't have faith and trust that God will deliver in his time the things that we want. We are not obeying our king. We are not under his rule. Instead, we go by the law of sin and death. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. We want to make our decisions based on what we know, what we understand, how we feel, instead of trusting God. Then he says... But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he that of the free woman was by promise. Which things, he said, this is an allegory now, this is in chapter 4 now, sorry. This is an allegory, for there are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, leads to bondage. The law given by Moses leads to your bondage as much as you try to keep it, which is Agar. For this, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which the mother of us all. So he's saying that we've become captive to this law when we want to live under the law. Now let's go to chapter 3 of Galatians. And this is so much reminiscent of Romans chapter 3. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. 
You know, God, God gave the law, but for a reason. And they became slaves to this law and slaves to their flesh, which is ruled by this law. Is then, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, we could have, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Righteousness should have been by the law, if the law could in fact give life. You know what that says? Even if you could keep every single law and be perfect in doing so, you still would not have been righteous because it wasn't in God's design. You could have a, a, a car that is perfect, that starts every time, you don't have to change anything, no maintain it, and so forth. But if your design, if, if your intent is that this car now can do excavations and landscaping and things like that, it doesn't work. It wasn't designed for that. And the law wasn't designed to make someone righteous. Number one, you couldn't, so you couldn't keep righteous because the law couldn't, could never make you righteous. It wasn't in God's design. And number two, because you could never keep it. You lose on both counts. And Jesus knew that when he was preaching to the masses on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. He knew that. Look what it says, continuing on. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. This is what Romans 3 says. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before, before faith came, he's... he's um, impersonating faith here. Faith is a character now. Before this faith came, we, kept, uh, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So we were kept. This word kept, there's another, I'm not going to go to that uh, scripture now for the sake of time, but it says the same thing in Romans 7. We were kept, we were kept captive under the law. We were prisoners under the law. We were slaves to the law. And the law is a very, very severe and harsh taskmaster. And it was done intentionally. Listen, it says, it was done intentionally until faith came, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, therefore, the law was our schoolmaster. The word there in the Greek is pedagogue. A pedagogue is a, is a, a discipliner or guardian of children. Literally, boy leader. The, the law was a boy leader. He wasn't the true teacher. And in the, in the Greek society, in the Roman society, they would use a pedagogue or a guardian to take the child to school to bring him to school, to monitor him, and so that the real teacher could teach the child, and then when the teaching is done, he would take the child home and be his guardian to make sure he got safely home, and so forth. The law was not the teacher. Who was the teacher? Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. He was the teacher. That's what Jesus, that's what Nicodemus said to, to, to Jesus. Master, rabbi, teacher, we know that you are come from God because no man can do these miracles unless God be with him. John said, I am not that light, but I'm the one that points to the light. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the Lord had a purpose. And Paul concludes in Romans, therefore the law is holy and just and good. It's a good thing. But you know what it does? The only function, well, there's more functions. 
but the main function was to bring us to Christ, to realise, yes, I cannot be perfect. Yes, I cannot hold the law. Yes, I am the most miserable of all men if I cannot, if Christ did not rise because I am in my sin. And this is what the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ tried to show to the people. You could keep the letter of the law. Yes, you did not commit adultery with that woman. And yes, you didn't uh, kill that man. But he says, but you have hate in your heart and you have lusted after that woman and you're just as guilty. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. How the letter of the law kills. How the letter of the law kills. Because it makes you realize you're so sinful. You're so dark that you cannot be accepted by God. All your righteousness, as Isaiah said, are like filthy rags. All my righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And how can I be without blemish? Remember, the Old Testament, as much as they killed the lambs and goats and the bullocks, their sin was not taken away. The, the wording used in Hebrews could never take away sin. God may have forgiven you for this, this moment in time so that your conscience you can live with, but it could never take away sin. And what does that mean? Number one, it means that it could never cleanse you or expiate you, your soul, of that sin forever. Number two, it means that that sin's going to come back all the time, all the time, all the time. And we become like we heard on Wednesday night, going to the confessional and confessing and confessing and confessing, but having no power to overcome it. Romans chapter 8, I, I don't know, I, 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 maybe I spend too much time in Romans, but I just love Romans, the book of Romans, because the Apostle Paul just opens up the door and he, he completely um, uh, exposits what Christ meant in being born again. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. After Paul had said, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he talked about the law. Wherefore the law is holy and good. For the, the law, the commandment taken occasion, deceived me and by it slew me through sin. And he said, oh, there's no way out, God. There's no way out. I tried and tried and tried and now I feel condemned because you revealed to me how sinful I am through the law. The law entered that sin may be exposed. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God. Through Jesus Christ, he came to faith. He says, the law came by Moses, but truth and grace came by Jesus Christ. And then the next verse, this is the verse that sealed for me my faith in Christ to believe that I was forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation. You know what the word condemnation means? It's a sentence. We are under a sentence. Like someone on death row is under a sentence. If there's no amnesty given by the governor or by the president or by the judge, we are destined to die, to be executed. We are under a sentence. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, we, were, we had the sentence of death in us when they were faced with all these trials and tribulations and stonings and, and uh, on, the, on the sea and persecutions. He said, we had this, the, the, the sentence of death in us. He thought he was going to die. 
He says, there's therefore now no sentence of death. There's no more guilt to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Remember First Peter, was it 3, where he talks about that, therefore by baptism we are saved. And he gave the metaphor of Noah and the flood. That was Jesus. Jesus was was the ark. And those that went into the ark were saved so as by water. The same water that condemned the world was the one that lifted it up above the storm and saved the eight souls that were in the ark. That was a, it, was, it was a transition from the old life to the new, from the dead life to the new life. And now those that are in Christ Jesus, they have no more to fear. They have no, no more condemnation. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. Check his words. Check everything that he said. He didn't come. Some people think Jesus came to condemn the world. The Beatitudes was not condemning them. The Beatitudes were telling them, this is how you are to become children of the kingdom. And I didn't come to condemn the world. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He's talking about the law. To the Jew it was the law of Moses. That was the law of sin and death. Why was it the law of sin and death? Because it revealed our sin and condemned us to die. But the law of the spirit of life is, another, is, is that other law in our members that is convicting us, that is telling us that's not right and giving to the believer the victory so he's no longer condemned to sin. That he has power over sin. That he can overcome sin. You are no longer servants. Therefore render your members as servants of righteousness, Romans 6 says. All is possible with Christ. And that's how we can be without blemish. That's how we can be without blemish. Because when we do sin... He as the high priest at the right hand of God can make the comers thereunto perfect. Because he's the advocate, he's the paraclete, he's the one between God and man that says, Father, forgive them for their sin. Take away that sin, forgive them for their sin. It is permanently gone. For I shed my blood for him. And my righteousness is imputed unto him or her. It is put to their account. The law of the spirit of life. It is, it is not a law that is some writing. It's, when he talks, if you, you've got to be very careful when you're studying the book of Romans and for, for other uh, parallel passages, if you will, When he talks about the law, he doesn't always speak about the law of Moses. Because the law can be to the Gentile, his conscience, the knowledge of good and evil. To him, it's a law. And if you transgress your conscience, you'll be judged for that, Romans 2 says. If you transgress the law of Moses, you'll be judged for that, the Apostle Paul says. But here, when he's talking about the law, he's talking about this, just like he's speaking in in opposites or... uh, Contrast, there's the law of sin and death, that law which sort of governed you, governed your motives, governed your, your actions. There is another law of the Spirit which can, which can govern you, which can control you, which can regulate you, and that is 
Only done through the Holy Spirit of God. That's why it has to be a supernatural change. It is not a, it's not a confirmation to something or conforming to something. It's a transforming of our lives by the renewal of our minds through the Spirit. It's a regeneration. It's a being born again. It's being quickened, made alive when we were dead in trespasses and sins before. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. And we may be accused. Yeah, you sinned. You, you did this today. You did that today. What is the Christian response? What is the response of Christ to that accusation? Read in the book of Revelation. The accuser of the brethren. What was the response to him, to Satan? It says, and they overcame him with the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him with the blood of the Lamb. Every time we're accused. And Satan says, yeah, you tripped up. I said, yeah, I did. I did trip up. But God loves me. And I repented of my sin. And he forgives me my sin. What advantage then does the one that's in the kingdom have when he talks about the one that is constantly poor, mourning, being persecuted, what is the advantage of someone that it's in there? He gets hurt. He gets, Paul said so many times how many trials he went through. Jesus said, I'll tell you what the advantage is. If you're poor in spirit, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Sorry, I made a mistake. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you mourn, you shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. This is in the future kingdom now. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. After thirsting and hungering, you will be filled. This, for those that understood what Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, maybe not immediately, because a lot of their these Beatitudes were quoted and the ideas in these Beatitudes were quoted by the apostles in their letters and preached to. It must have been so comforting, so encouraging, so fortifying. We're not perfect in the sense that we are without blemish. But God makes us perfect through Jesus Christ, through his blood, through his sacrifice. Christ fulfilled the law when he went into the Holy of Holies after the sacrifice and offered his blood for the whole world. I want to, if I can find a uh, thing that just really speaks to this. And we often sing it at CFG or even sometime during singing. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor, they shall receive in the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, blessed are they, they that mourn, nobody likes to mourn. No one likes to be in that situation where something has badly gone wrong and they're mourning and they're sorrowing. Paul said, sorrowing yet we rejoice in 2 Corinthians 6.10. Why can he say that? Because in the kingdom, we will find comfort. In the kingdom, we will find consolation and strength. 
Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Can you imagine the people at the time of Christ being oppressed and going through all kinds of um, history and wars and, and occupation and oppression and Jesus comes along and says this? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist temptation strong when for my deep grief there is no relief Though my tears flow all the day, all the night long. Does Jesus say, uh, care when I said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it ought to him? Does he care? This is the response from Christ. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief when the days are weary than the long night dreary. I know my Saviour cares. And when we are in the kingdom, when we are in the kingdom, God is faithful to his covenant and he will do what he said he would do. Let's all be kingdom children. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes this message. Our brother, please find it. The law versus grace. It's been said a number of times from this pulpit that the most important thing about us is what we think of God. And I see that distinction here too. One of the verses that Brother Doug uh, referenced in Romans about them going about to establish their own righteousness also highlights that because it begins, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, the nature of God's righteousness, who he really is. And the beginning of Romans, one of Brother Doug's favorite verses there, how is God's righteousness known and understood? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. True knowledge of God. And I think that is how we understand and, and, and accept the Sermon on the Mount. How we understand all of these commandments that Jesus gave. The other night, Friday night, uh, you know, it's nice weather. I like to sleep with the, with the window or with the door, the, the screen, sliding door open. Uh, it's, my wife does too. It's fresh air. And if some of you know our place there outside, there's a tennis court not, not maybe 200 meters away and some picnic tables. And it happens to be on Friday nights on the weekend, the favorite hangout place of some of the youth and their voices uh, carry, and sometimes their music does too, and it led me to some fretting, some pacing up and down. Should I call the police? What should I do? Should I complain to the bylaw officers? This is not fair. This is, I've got young kids. They were sound asleep there. It was fine. It was really, the issue was me. I, I could be thinking, well, it's disturbing. Some of their language is stewed about it a little bit, and of course, my, my loving wife, the next day, as we were, we were driving somewhere, the topic came up again, and she thought, as she suggested, wouldn't it be nice one of these times when that happens to go out there, maybe with a plate of cookies or a pitcher of lemonade, and have a little conversation with these young guys and see where they're at. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's what we read about loving your enemies, about extending love. 
I, the problem was, was I did not have a picture of God's righteousness, of who God is, his heart towards those young people, his real character, the way he is. And I was fretting about my rights and the inconvenience to me, and I missed who God was in that situation. And I really think that is the whole Sermon on the Mount, too. It's, it's seeing really who God is, and those of us that have his spirit, this is not heavy anymore. It shouldn't be heavy anymore because it is then the means, the calibration, the check. Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I, do I have a good view of God's righteousness through Christ Jesus? And then I can understand the Sermon on the Mount and Christ's teaching. It's not a heavy burden. And Oh, did I, do I really have to do this? It's even harder. It's even No, it's light and peace and joy because I see God through all of this. I don't see the weight of the law. May that be our view this day, that we look to God to see who he is and then become perfect as he is perfect, our Father in heaven. He will give us the grace. His spirit will nudge us in the right direction. My friend outside of Christ who does not have his spirit dwelling in you, these words, they can only be condemnation to you, really, sadly, unless you realize all of all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus and accept that, believe it and be changed. With that, we conclude the service.